It's a privilege to be here with you today, and uh, we so love and respect your pastor and his wife, Ted and Lindsay, have become dear friends of Cindy and I, and uh, your pastor is wonderfully gifted and a man of humility and real passion for the work of Christ, and so we're very thankful to be partnered with them. Thank you, Chris, and we're thankful for Chris and Jameson and your staff here as well. We love being a part of GCC and doing this ministry together with all of you, and so it's an honor to be here and to stand in this pulpit open God's Word. I want to thank your elders as well for entrusting me with this time also. And so I encourage you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, the ushers will come forward and if you just catch their attention, they'll give you a Bible. And uh, we encourage you to follow along in God's Word, Colossians chapter 3. There's a one big idea I'd sort of like to leave you with. It's this. Relationships multiply our joy and divide our sorrows. Relationships multiply our joys and divide or lessen our sorrows. And this is important to keep in mind because God has designed us to be in relationship and do life in relationship, not alone. We are social beings. We've been created with a need for one another and to be in community with other people. But we live in a world that's increasingly characterized by isolation and autonomy. And so we need to be aware of that and we need to be sort of fighting the trend and the drift that's happening in our society. Jesus said it this way when asked what's the greatest commandment. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But then he surprised the questioner because he said there's a second commandment and he linked the two together. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's the vertical relationship with our creator God. And then there's the horizontal relationship. And we're called to both of those. We can't just be in a right relationship with God if we're not right in right relationship with one another. And so if we want to honor God and obey God and bring glory to God, we need to be doing this thing called relationship with those around us. But it's not always easy. And so I want to provide some reminders for you that Paul has given us in Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 12 to 14, where we're going to see five fundamentals, as I've called them, that he gives us for relationships. These are helps. These are instruction. This is instruction from the Lord on how to have healthy relationships and to be growing our relationships. So let me read our passage and then pray, and then we'll unpack these words together. Colossians 3.12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for the privilege and honor it is to be here with these people, with this congregation. I thank you for this church and the faithfulness throughout these years, for the gospel witness in this city that's so desperately needed. And so I just thank you for the leadership here and for the congregation and pray a blessing on them and you would continue to use each one for your glory to extend your kingdom. And as we now come into this time in the word, I just pray you'd help us to humble ourselves under your word. You have given your word. It's living and active. It's a unique book unlike any other this world will ever know. It's inspired by your spirit, but then your spirit takes it when we proclaim it or read it, and your spirit applies it personally and powerfully to each of our lives. So I pray in this area of relationships, you would encourage, you would correct, you would convict whatever you know is needed in each heart. So speak to us now through your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, five fundamentals for relationship. The first fundamental is that this idea that you have a part in it, your effort 
must continue. Your effort must never stop, actually. Paul says in verse 12, put on then. Put on then. Now, this is an instruction for you. The NIV says, clothe yourselves. Put on means clothe yourselves. I'm very thankful you all clothed yourselves this morning. Thank you. That's a blessing to all of us. And none of us in the morning think about anything else that we put on our clothes. And that's what we should do every single day. And here Paul's saying just like we physically put clothes on, clothe ourselves, so also there's some things we are to put on. This is our part. It's actually an imperative. You understand, when the Bible gives imperatives to New Testament believers, it, 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 the Bible gives you that imperative because you're able to do what he commands you to do. God never commands you to do something you're not able to do. So because this is an imperative, this is something we are able to do and we are to do on a regular, continual basis to put these things on. This is our part. Now, just a little bit of help in understanding this. Paul has already used the put-on, take-off language back in verses 9 and 10 of this chapter. And do not lie to one another, he says. Do not lie to one another, but rather seeking that you have, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. So because you have put off the old practices, then don't lie to each other. In verse 10, and you have put on, past tense, you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. What Paul's saying here is that salvation, God does this transformation. It begins in the heart, and he's put off the old you and put on the new you. So there's a transformation. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so the reality is, salvation is not just you do something different on Sunday morning and go to church, or you do some religious traditions, or you read your Bible, or pray, or serve, or give. That's not salvation. Salvation is a transforming work of the Spirit of God. And so you have put off, when you got saved, you have put off the old life and put on the new life. Now, that should be a a reminder to us that there's a transformation. It begins in the heart and works its way out. And so the idea of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't have welling up inside of you to some degree a growing affection for Christ and the things of Christ and a decreasing affection for the things of the old life of sin and of the world, then you maybe should check and see if you've ever come to faith in Christ. Maybe you're very religious, but you've never had a soul transformation through salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it's not perfect. We're, none of us are perfect in this. None of it's always consistent. But my point is, somewhere inside of you should be this growing affection for Him and then this decreasing affection for sin and self and the things of the world. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, you, he talked to Thessalonians, you have turned from, to God from idols. You, this is the, what happens at salvation. We turn from our old life and from our sin and we turn to God. And this is what God does inside of us. And this changes our affection, changes our desires, changes our direction. And as part of that, Paul says you should now on a daily basis, you should have a desire to put off the old life and the things of the old life and put on the new life, to be like Christ in how you talk and how you interact, how you relate to one another. And that's our effort. That's something we need to consciously every day, perhaps every hour, think about and make a choice about. Now, how do we do that? Well, some of you say, that's pretty difficult for me. Well, the second fundamental of relationships is your ability. You have an ability, and it's not in and of yourself. Your ability comes from God. Paul's going to show you that just briefly here. He says, put on then... Now look at how he describes us. We're God's chosen, we're the holy ones, and we're beloved. He's just reminding you of some of the 
kindness of the Lord, some of the things the Lord has done, which enable you, therefore, to obey the command to put on these things. If you're sitting here saying, well, this is too hard. I've tried this before. It's impossible for me. It is impossible for you and me in and of our own strength. But because of we're Christ and because of Christ in us, we're able to do this. And Paul gives us three characteristics that should encourage us in this. I want to describe these just briefly for you. First, he calls us chosen ones. We're chosen ones. Do you understand this this morning? That you, specifically you, are God's chosen one. The, the God of all creation, the great the I am, the one who's created everything and knows everybody on planet Earth, he knows you and he chose you. It's one of the great theological truths of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealed as the divine initiator. God initiates. God chooses. He chose Abraham. He chose uh, Jacob. He chose Joseph. He chose Jeremiah. He chose the apostles. He chose Paul. God's this one who chooses, and he has chosen you. You're a chosen one. Let me just give you some biblical passages that support this idea. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, Paul writes, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom? That's us, those who are saved. He's chosen us. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has chosen you. You're a chosen one. Or how about this famous passage for this, Ephesians 1, 3-6. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. You are chosen. God created you. He called you. He chose you. He looked upon you in love, and he chose you. He knows you, and he has therefore empowered you to carry out what he has called you to do. We're his chosen. Such a wonderful truth. Those he chooses, he empowers to do what he calls them to do. The second thing Paul says about us is we're holy. We're holy. Have you ever thought about that? I'm pretty sure most of us sinned this week at some point during this week. At least I know I did. I think probably most of you look really good, but I think probably most of us sinned at some point. But we're still holy. We're declared holy before him. Holy means we're set apart. We're sanctified. It's literally being scribed around. God has set us apart and declared us holy. We who still sin are declared holy. How has that happened? Because of Jesus' righteousness being placed on us. 
You see, at the moment of salvation, at that very moment when you repented of your sin and confessed your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sins were fully paid for by him on the cross. And so all of that was put on him. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. And his perfect righteousness, Jesus never once disobeyed. He never once rebelled. He never once sinned. He's perfectly holy and righteous. And all of his holiness and righteousness was imputed to you as the theological term. It was placed on you so that when God looks at you and me now as his chosen ones, because we're in Christ, he sees us as righteous. And because we have the righteousness of Christ, we're able to put on. And then the third thing he says about us is we're beloved ones. This is such a wonderful statement. I don't know if you feel loved by anybody else on planet Earth, but here's what I know. If you're a Christian, you are beloved by God. The word literally means agape. It's not, listen, God doesn't love you because you're lovely or loving. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of his, he loved us and chose us and saved us. We're the beloved ones. I read Ephesians 1. Let me reread it. The end of verse 4 and verses 5 and 6. In love, in love, he the Father. Listen, your salvation started because the Father decided to pour out his love upon you when you were not loving him at all. But in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Because you are chosen, because you are holy, because you are beloved, you're able to obey the command to put on. In terms of grammar, when you're studying the Bible, there's this understanding the indicative precedes the imperative. Now, I know that warms your heart. That's just so exciting. You're so glad you came to church to understand the indicative precedes the imperative. The indicative mood is a statement of fact that you are, you are chosen, you, you are holy, you are beloved, you are his, you're adopted, you're transformed, you're saved, you're washed, you're renewed, you're redeemed. And because of that, that's the indicative, that's the statement of the truth, because of that, you're able to carry out the imperative, put on. He gives us the ability to do this because he's transformed us. You say, I can't love, I can't forgive, I can't do this relational stuff, it's too hard. Some of you, when you think of relationship, you've been hurt so deeply. You're like, I can't do it again. You can't, but Christ in you can. And some of you are saying, I've tried and I'm so lonely and it's so hard. Listen, you're able because of who is in you. And he's created and called you to be in relationship. Some of you are like me, I'm a pretty strong introvert. I'm pretty okay being alone. And some of you are like that. It's like, no, he calls us to be in relationship. We need to invest in that. We need to be committed to that. And we're able because of what Christ has already done in us. So those are our first two fundamentals of relationship. We have our part. It's we need to put on constantly, continually. And we're able to do that because of what he's already done in us. The third fundamental is also in verse 12. And it's the attitude that we're to have. What are we to put on? We're to put on a Christ-like attitude. Every day in every relationship. Easy relationships and hard relationships. When you go to work or the classroom tomorrow, you're to put these things on with your family and everything. This is our part, and we're able to do this because of Christ in us. And because Christ is in us, we're to reflect his attitude to others in relationship. He's going to give us five virtues here in verse 12. Five virtues that we're to put on. 
Before we look at those virtues, I just want to encourage you, again, back to the vertical and horizontal, because of the transforming nature of our relationship, that now we are those who love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're now able to carry out the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we're able to put on these virtues because of the vertical relationship of Christ in us. But Paul, before listing these five virtues, he actually lists some vices, some things we're to put off. Notice in verse 5, put to death. In other words, put off, put to death. These things should not characterize you as a Christian. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What was the pre-Christ character you had? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, which is lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are five vices we're to put off. Those things should not describe us in relationship with others or in our, our own thought life before the Lord. In verse 8, he lists five more vices we're to put off. In verse 8, but now you must put them all away. What should we put off? What should we put away? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Christians should not be characterized by these things. Why? Because they're not Christ-like. They're not the character of Christ. So he gives us actually ten virtues or vices we're to put off. And then he's going to tell us what to put on. The five virtues in verse 12, if you notice them, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. What you notice about those, those are all relationally based. He doesn't say here to put on things like hard work, creativity, things that are not relationally based. The five he gives us are all about relationship. It's how do we relate to one another in our, cor- in our small group, in our church, in our family, in our workplace. All of these things have to do with how we get along. These are Christ-like attitudes that as Christians we should put on constantly every day in our relationships. Let me walk through these with us. First, put on compassionate hearts. Compassionate heart. Now the heart in the Bible days was not the same as it is today. The heart, we think of the heart. And Valentine's is coming up and not that far off and you'll start seeing the cards, you know, on your cards. I love you, my heart, with all my heart, I love you. The word heart in the New Testament wasn't actually like we think of heart. It was actually the innards. It was the bowels. It was, it was so, this, if you, listen, man, if you want to be really biblical this Valentine's Day, get her a card that says, I love you with all my bowels. <laughs> Probably won't get you, <laughs> get you very far. I mean, it won't help at all with the Valentine's thing. But that's what it is. Why? why? The idea of heart in the New Testament is your innermost being. When we think of heart, it's such an emotional fall in love, fall out of love. It's such a fleeting sort of thing. For them, the heart was the seat of the will. It was core. And Paul says, put on compassionate hearts, compassion for others. When you see a need, you're moved from your inner being. This is how we are to be in relationship. We're so moved to help them, to, to have care for them. That's why it lessens your sorrows because when you have a friend who has a compassionate heart, when you're hurting, they're hurting. This is why often when we have a friend who's in, you know, somebody's marriage is breaking up and and, and has ended and and they're hurting and they're crying and they're hurting. And sometimes, listen, even in the church, sometimes we just say to them, just go find somebody else. Because why? We don't want them hurting because we hurt when they're hurting. And maybe the best thing for them to do is just kind of be patient and wait. And and, and so when when we really are compassionate, when when they're bleeding, we're bleeding. This is what Paul says we're to put on every day. The world in Paul's day was not known for its compassion. It was a very, very harsh world. 
very uncaring, but the Christians brought compassion to it, mercy from the innermost being, not put on, not because you got something out of it. Just com- I wonder, are you a compassionate person to other people? Or do you go, oh, I'm not taking their pain on. I've got enough problems. I don't care. The second virtue we're to put on every day is kindness. Kindness. This is kind of like 101 level. Of course we should be kind. But how many people are not kind in their relationships? All of you could name some people right now. They speak harsh words, cutting words. They don't think the best of one another. They don't work for the best in one another. It's interesting, this Greek word translated kindness into English, it was used this way in Jesus' day, in Paul's day. The Greek word was used of wine, which has grown mellow with time and lost its harshness. That's a great picture of kindness, growing mellow over time and lost its harshness. That's why the older we get, the longer we walk in Christ and with Christ, the more kind we should be. But that's not always the case, is it? Jesus defined himself with this word. Remember he says in Matthew 11 to take his yoke upon you, and he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy is kindness. Jesus says, I am kind. He was kind to his apostles. He was kind to the prostitutes. He was kind to the tax guys. He was a kind person. He used to be charitable, to be benevolent, to care for others, to make it easier for them, not harder. Kindness is to pour out God's grace to those around you. Kindness is God's grace mellowing us and taking the edge off. And so we're more naturally, as the Spirit works in us, we're not as harsh. We're we're, we're gentle. We're easy. We're we're just nice. Perhaps you are not a nice person. You're not a kind person. You don't know it, but everybody around you does. Some of us are kind when everything's convenient, when things are going our way, when we're getting what we want. Uh, But we can turn very harsh or mean or cutting or bitter or angry or anything but kind. Do you make the life of those around you in relationship with you better because of your kindness or not? The third virtue he gives is humility. Humility is sort of the foundational virtue that all others tend to flow out of. Humility was virtually unknown in Jesus' day. The Romans and the Greeks hated humility. Humility was their servants. Humility was someone lower than them who had to serve them. So someone would never aspire to be humble because that's aspiring to go down. And so they despised humility. Jesus is the one who elevated humility as a Christian virtue. It stands completely counterintuitive to the world around him in his day and our day as well. Our culture despises humility and elevates pride. But humility is wonderful. It resonates with our heart. I guarantee if you walk out of this service and you see a child showing humility because they're respecting their parent or an older one and they speak in a respectful way, you're just going to smile. Something about that just resonates with inside you. When you see someone showing humility to appear or to someone else, there's something about that. that just Why? Because God is it's one of the character traits of God. Jesus was humble. Listen, pride is ugly, humility is beautiful. Pride is ugly, humility is beautiful. The world says the opposite. The Bible says pride kills, but humility brings to life. 
Pride is the root of sin, but humility is the character of God. All five of these, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, all of these are character traits listed in Scripture of Jesus. These are character traits of God. But our world, the world we live in, and the world our young people are growing up in, teaches constantly in every sort of vehicle that pride is a good thing. It's good to be proud. It's actually great to be proud. You want to pursue pride because that's the most important thing. You need to be filled with pride. But listen, the only one that exists who has a right to be proud, God himself, actually is humble. And he speaks contrary to what the world says. He actually commands us to humble ourselves. Another imperative given in Scripture which we have the ability to do. God will humble you, but the proper approach is humble yourself. Choose the path of lowliness. God said in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. How about James 4, 6? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Listen, if you want to follow the world or follow your flesh, you can do that, but you have to know this now, that the almighty creator God stands as your opposition. He's not for you. He's not with you. He's opposing you. If you want to be a proud person because the world says that's the way to go, you're not like your heavenly father. You're like the one from below, like Satan. He's proud. Jesus was humble. Not fake humility, that's pride as well. So get low, stay low, stop elevating self, stop promoting yourself, stop thinking you're better than others or your opinion matters more than others. You have to be heard, it has to be your way, I have to win, I have to be first, I have to be best, I have to be recognized, I have to be front and center. Paul said in Philippians, consider others more significant than yourselves. Frankly, I've run into too many people in churches, our church, and churches in general, who self-declare themselves humble. Can I tell you that's not the way that you know you're humble? <laughs> because our hearts are so proud, and we will tell ourselves that our pride is actually humility. I sat with a man just not that long ago in our church. His marriage is broken and ended, and he is an incredibly proud man, and it's wrecked his wife, and he declared that he is one of the most humble people ever. And it's like, you've got to be kidding me. Nobody sees that that's in relationship with you. Pride, an unteachable spirit. It's just ugly. Right now, Stephen Yule, professor at Heritage, is preaching at our church. We've hired him to preach 10 sermons during our ministry year. And, and so he's preaching, and we're working through the book of Philippians. He's in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. And I got his manuscript on Thursday because we have a, our, one of our services translated into Spanish and Cantonese, so the pastors have to submit their manuscript early. So I was reading it over. It's like, man, I'd rather be there listening to him preach than preaching. But um, it's a great sermon. I can't wait to watch it on, a, on our website. But I'm going to steal from his sermon that he's preaching right now on our service, all right, because it's so good. But he's concluding with a quote by Thomas Watson on pride. Thomas Watson was one of the Puritans, and so this is, give credit to Stephen Yule, this quote from Thomas Watson, but here's a quote. Do you see Christ humbling himself, and yet you're proud? Oh, it is an unseemly sight to see God humbling himself, 
and man exalting himself. And here's the line that really gripped my heart. To see a humble Savior, but a proud sinner. To see a humble Savior, but a proud sinner. One of my pet peeves are selfies. I know it's kind of my age thing. I get it. But I, I don't understand the craze with selfies. You know, the, and, and Cindy and I, a couple years ago, were out west to see our son and his family in Alberta, and we were driving through the mountains, and we were up alone on this over, just gorgeous, and we said, let's take a selfie. We'd never done it. And so we were trying to figure out, we didn't know there was a button that flips a camera at first. We're like, how do they do this? And then we figured that one out, and then we're, we were killing ourselves laughing, because all we got were foreheads and mountains. It's like... But, you know, the selfies, and it's a craze, but it, it is really, now it's not wrong to take a selfie, but, uh, but listen, it is an evidence of our, our culture's preoccupation. We used to take pictures of other people, is what I'm saying. That's how we used to do the camera thing. All right, and I was at a football game this fall. The weekend I was preaching this in our church and uh, Western football game with one of our, uh, my elders. And, and just down the row from us were some university students. And this one girl, woman was taking selfies and selfie after selfie after. But she was trying to get, because you know when you do a selfie, you have to get it right. They all know the leg goes a certain way, you know, arms go a certain way. And I, I read the new thing in selfies, get a, your finger under your chin some, I don't know, way. And, and she was, her lips were trying to, and she was picture after picture after and I was just killing myself. I wanted to take a picture of her and use it in my sermon, but I thought maybe she comes to our church or something. And, <laughs> but here's what I knew she was going to do. She was going to go through like 20 pictures she took and find the one, and then she was going to post it as if it was just a casual shot that I always look this good. <laughs> is that not what happens? It, it is. It, it's the craziness of our culture. And, and listen, something behind all of that is this preoccupation with self, and our culture just puts it out there. It's the best thing. And God says, no, it isn't. Here's what, here's what, listen, this little help. If you want your relationships to grow and be healthier, less of you, more of God, and more of others. Less you, more God, and more others. The fourth virtue that God puts forth through Paul here is meekness. Meekness is related to humility. Meekness is not weakness, as the saying goes, but it's power under control. So to be meek doesn't mean you're weak, but it's having control, self-control. Self-control is a gift from the Spirit. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. And so you don't power up on people. You don't overwhelm people. You, you control yourself so that you're kind to people, gentle with people. You put people first. Have you ever seen a really, truly strong man? I don't mean the, the, the gym produced, you know, or sometimes steroids produced. There's nothing wrong with exercise and all of that. But I mean the guy who's born that way. He is just, I, I grew up with a guy. I, I grew up outside of London, and this guy was like, he was all through elementary school, just way bigger, stronger than everybody. When we got to grade nine, he could have played senior football and been the starting star. He was just a brute of a man in terms of size. But we often call those men gentle what? Giants, they're gentle, they're gentle. They don't have to power up. They know they're stronger. But it's under control. Not all of them, but it seems like so often the truly strong ones, they don't have to show it. They don't have to prove it. There is meekness. It's, that's the idea of power under control. As I mentioned, Jesus defining himself in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Meek is the word gentle. Lowly in heart is humble. This is a character of Christ. If you're powering up in any relationship, that's sin and that's destructive. The fifth virtue is patience. Patience, long-suffering, to have a long fuse, slow to anger, not quick-tempered. If you're in a relationship with someone who's quick to anger, don't look at them right now because they'll get angry. (laughs) You might be in trouble anyway. You might not even look, but on the way home, you're going to be accused of looking. How dare you center me out like that? But if you're in a relationship with a man or woman or a parent or child who's quick to anger, anger, you know you live nonstop every day, every minute, just wondering what's the next thing that's going to push them over the edge. It's exhausting. You know, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Some of you live at 99 degrees. And so it takes the slightest things. The kids are a little loud. Your spouse said something you didn't like. The driver in front of you is going too slow. That's the one that reveals my sin and my impatience. And that's just wrong, though. It's just wrong. No, no, they need to drive. We're always blaming the trigger. We're called, we're to put on every day in every relationship patience. The boss corrected you. The co-worker, the teacher, the classmate, the weather isn't what we wanted. One degree and bam, you, over, you just blow up. You yell, you slam, you, you vent, you punch, you kick, you swear, you flip out. We've all seen this. Patience is a command that we're to put on every day in every relationship. Why? Because it's Christ in me. It, it reflects the character of Christ. To have a slow fuse. If you're a quick-fused person, can I encourage you to stop blaming the trigger? The trigger is whatever it is. It's the kids, it's the spouse, it's the boss, it's the, the driver, whatever. It's not their fault. Listen, it's not their Other people have triggers and don't respond that way. Here's what it is. It's sin. It is sin in your heart. And the answer is own it, repent of it. Stop blaming, stop excusing. It's sin. Repent of it. And then if you need some help, get some biblical counseling Because that needs to be transformed by the gospel and by the word of Christ. Relationships require patience. The relationship requires all of these. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are Christ-like attitudes. This is fundamental to relationships. Now, verse Verse 13, Paul's going to give a couple more. They're not virtues like these, but they're a couple sort of helps in relationship what I've called these is gracious acts. These, my actions must be gracious because even as we're trying to put these things on every day, we, we will have some tension between us in small groups, in the church, in our families, in workplaces, in classrooms. And so Paul gives a couple more helps in verse 13. He gives some emphasis here of how we can be grace-filled towards one another gracious towards one another. John 1.14 describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Some of you are truth people, but you're not grace people. And some are grace without the truth. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. I don't know if you have noticed it or not, but relationships are not easy. 
Cindy and I have been married, as, as Chris mentioned, 40 years, going on 41 in April, and we've had a great marriage, and we have five kids and now a bunch of grandkids and stuff, and we love each other. And, but it's not always easy to stay in relation, to be married, to, to have kids, to have parents, to have extended family, to, to be in a church. You know, it's not, I don't know about you, but I know I've hurt some people in our church. I've sinned against some people in our church. It's just, that's what it is to be in relationship, and it requires some grace being extended. And here Paul gives us a couple of helps with this. Two things he tells us to be able to extend grace to one another. The first is bear with one another. Bear, bearing with one another. And some of you are like, oh yeah, I bear with my spouse. I bite my lip and I just bear up with her. And I just, I can, I'm putting up with him. I'm just living with him. I'm put, that's not what the word means. It has that connotation in the English. Kind of bite your lip and just tolerate them and, until Christ comes back or takes you home. That, that's not what the word means. All right, it doesn't have that sort of sense. Remember, we're to be kind and humble and meek and compassionate and patient. The word bear with just means don't quit. Don't quit, that's all. Relationships, enduring relationships, just take a commitment to stay at. Now listen, I know sometimes relationship ends. Sometimes a marriage ends. You can do everything you can do, but it depends on the other, and a marriage might end. And sometimes, you know, there's times to leave a church and things, but here's what happens. Somebody gets hurt in the church or upset or something happens, and I'm out of here, and off they go, and then it's not going to be long before the next church hurts them, and again, off I go, and there's times to leave. And, I'll, and I'm not saying if you're in a marriage that's abusive, I'm not saying, please hear me clearly, I'm not saying bear with and just stay in that. I'm saying come to the church leadership today. In our church, if somebody comes forward and they're in an abusive relationship, that day they get help. That day we help get them out where they're safe. That day we take action. Now, God can re reconcile and restore and repair that, but it's not without some others' help and all of that. We're never asked anybody to stay in an abusive. I'm not talking about that. Let's set that over here, that that you need to deal with right away. But I'm saying that aside, listen, you just have to have a commitment. That's what marriage is. Love ebbs and flows. The feelings of love ebbs and flow. And in the marriage is the commitment we're going to stay at this long term. Better, worse, richer, poorer. Remember those vows? Friendships require those as well. Church requires that as well. Bear with, stay at it. Don't quit. Secondly, he talks about forgiving. If the bearing with causes some struggles because of sin, then forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, listen, must forgive. If you've been in a relationship for any length of time, somebody's going to sin against you. Guarantee it. What's required is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Enduring relationships require forgiveness. This is just a reality. Now, just a quick sort of tip on this. There's two types of forgiveness, vertical and horizontal. The vertical, listen, when somebody sins against you, the first thing right away, here's what you need to do. You need to release that to the Lord. You need to just, this is what Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. Remember he said that on the cross? Father, forgive them. Listen, the Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross were not restored horizontally with Jesus. But when somebody sins against you, you just you take it to the Lord right away. You maybe need to take it every hour and every day initially. God, I'm just leaving this with you. God says, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He says, like, let it go. Leave it with me. Your heart needs to be God. My heart is to forgive and to reconcile. Even though I'm in pain and still crying, I just want to uh, vertically, I just want to give this to you. Father, forgive them. I'm not, you're not reconciled, reconciled horizontally, but listen, if you don't do this vertical, it will eat you alive. 
It will be a poison in your heart and soul every day. It will consume you and wreck you. It will steal your joy and your delight in the Lord and your peace. And so what you can do, listen, you can do this every, and maybe it's hourly, maybe it's every five minutes at first. God, I just release this to you. I, I forgive them and I just release this. It doesn't, I'm not talking about the horizontal and the consequences. The second piece is the horizontal forgiveness. That happens when the guilty party comes and asks forgiveness. Now you can approach them and say, we need to reconcile this, but listen, it's only when the guilty party owns their sin and asks forgiveness, and then you are commanded to forgive. And you say, well, you don't know what they did to me. Here's what Paul says. Listen, you have been forgiven, so you must also forgive. Here's, here's a help for you. I have sinned against God thousands of more times than anybody will ever sin against me. And I have sinned more greatly against a holy, perfect God than anyone will ever sin against me. And the more I understand that theological truth, the more able I am to extend forgiveness when someone sins against me. The horizontal flows out of what Christ has done in our lives and forgiven us through the cross. Now, if, if you're in that relationship, I'm not saying somebody comes and says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry is for mistakes. I bumped into you. We're Canadians. We're known for saying, I'm sorry. Right? That's a, it's so easy to say, is it not? I find it very easy. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I can say it all day long. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But that's, that's for mistakes, not sin. You see, sin requires not I'm sorry. Sin requires this statement. Will you forgive me for, and then you say what your sin was. And I guarantee, you try saying I'm sorry, super easy. You try saying, will you forgive me for, that's hard. Because that takes humility, that takes brokenness, that takes repentance, that shows a heart. And so Paul says we extend grace to one another by bearing with each other and forgiving one another. The final fundamental, verse 14, final fundamental, is the motive in all of this. Our motive can't be selfish. You can't be doing this just to get a better relationship, to get something from somebody. That's, that's selfish, that's sinful, that's pride. The motive is love, of course. Look at verse 14. And above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The primary motivator in every relationship is love. And you say, understand this, because he has loved us, First John teaches that, right? Because he has already loved us, we can love one another. Because we've already experienced the divine love, we are the beloved. Remember, your chosen ones, you're holy and you're beloved. Because you have been loved by God with agape love, you now, in all your relationships, even for the people who aren't lovely or loving themselves, you can actually agape them. Agape is not a feeling. It's not emotion. Agape is I choose from my inner being. I choose to respond to you, to treat you, to think about you, to move towards you as God does to me with agape love. I will love you with a compassionate heart. I'll be kind, humble, meek, and patient. I'll choose. But Paul says, above all of these, this is the greatest of these. Remember what he taught in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. You see how much this overlaps with Colossians? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Listen, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8. And Paul says, I love his visual on this. He says, above all these things, when we put on love in our relationships, listen, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. You know perfect harmony. You love music. You love your certain type of music. When I, when I preach this, I was joking. This doesn't include rap music. It's, it's not beautiful. Now, now I, I'm, I'm just, I'm joking. I'm joking, please. All right? I'm old and I don't get it. When I preached this, one of our elders came and he loves Christian rap music. And he sent me some songs. And I said, the words are terrific. The music is just anything but a symphony to me. That just is, but we, you know, you have your certain style of music that, and you know when the notes are right on, like, like the worship this morning, you know, it just, it, but we have sometimes, we talk cringe moments, you know, it doesn't probably hardly ever happen here, hardly ever happens with our team on a Sunday, but the odd time somebody will hit a wrong note, and everybody does this, you know, it's because wrong notes, you know, where you put all, an orchestra before they start playing, they're all doing their own thing, is that not like, oh, that sounds awful. But then when it's all together, there's such a beauty. It's a symphony. And when love, it covers all things, it bears all things, it believes all things. You wash over your relationships with gape love. And what the result is, is just a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's a beautiful symphony. It glorifies God. Relationships, true relationships that honor Christ, that glorify God, that bless others, they're born out of the transforming work of salvation. But then they also are the fruit of us every day putting on what God has called us to, the character of Christ, bearing with and forgiving one another. And as we do this, listen, this truly will multiply your joys and divide your sorrows and be an incredible blessing to you, to everybody around you, to your church, and to the kingdom beyond that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the practical nature of your word as your spirit and move Paul to write these instructions to the church in Colossae. Thank you that they're just applicable now some 2,000 years later to us. And we acknowledge it isn't always easy to be in relationship. It's there's certain times we've been hurt, we've been wounded, we've been let down. People have used things we've shared to attack us, to turn them against us. Some here are just so broken and they're, they struggle so much and how can I do this? And Father, thank you that in and of ourselves this is impossible, but because of Christ in us, because of your Spirit empowering us, we're able. So you just call us to take the first step to just step out in faith, to reach out to somebody. For those relationships that are damaged by sin, we pray that there would be true biblical repentance and forgiveness and how we've all seen at times that you just, you restore and you repair and you reconcile such that the relationship was better than anybody ever dreamed it could be. So Father, we pray for the relationships in this church and, and, and beyond that for all of us that all that we do would just be a testimony of you and the reality of you and your goodness and your work in our lives and in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name.